This is exactly right. Case Files, an award-winning podcast, presents unforgettable true crime stories. Presented by an anonymous host, Case File delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser-known cases that deserve more attention. Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved and some are cold, very cold. This is Buried Bones. Hey, Kate, how's it going? It's going well. How about with you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. We get asked, I think you and I both get asked about how our jobs influence our parenting style. And I know your kids are a little older than my kids are. And I think about that a lot, actually. What am I doing differently? My dad was an attorney. And anytime I talked about potentially doing something wrong or illegal, he was never concerned about the ethics. He was always concerned I was going to get caught. That was his thing. And he said, do not call me. Call David Shepard, who's our family friend, who's a defense attorney, and get ready to provide your own bail. So I bet I know the answer to this, but are you an extra paranoid parent because of what your job is? Well, you know, I think that that's something fairly common uh, with uh, people who work in law enforcement. We see such a concentrated exposure of kind of the worst type of crimes that you could imagine as a parent, you know, experiencing uh, such as child abduction or, you know, kids sneaking out to meet somebody they met online. And yeah, you know, I think it really, from my perspective, uh, going all the way back to my, my older set of kids, you know, that was where become a little bit more paranoid about what's going to happen to them. You know, and actually in my book, I, I bring this up as just, you know, how the job really influenced me in a negative way from a parenting standpoint where, you know, my, my first wife, you know, she was very strong Christian and, and had this uh, church function at night inside this gymnasium. And she, you know, was crowded and we get there and she lets the kids just go run off to where we couldn't see them. And these are, at the time, the kids are, you know, roughly four to seven years old. Hmm. And I was like, what are you doing? And, you know, her response was, it's okay. They're all Christians here. And my oh. response was, BTK was president of his church. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, and that's that's kind of that mentality that I've developed. I can even remember my youngest daughter getting, you know, mad at something and in a huff, you know, she ran out of the house and she was younger and, and I was driving home and, and my wife called me. So I'm in my work vehicle. 
it's an unmarked, you know, four Taurus, but I had light bars in the, in the windshield, you know, so it was obvious cop car. And I go and I see her, you know, kind of moping around this park. You know, and I, I just sit and I watch her for a period of time, see what she's doing. Oh. <laughs> and then I get out, you know, and I'm in my, at, at this point in time, I had, you know, butted down shirt on and a tie. I look very formal, had my gun on my hip. And I just gesture <laughs> in the car. <laughs> and there was no questions asked, you know. So that is kind of the, the tough thing. And it's, it's also kind of fun. Where, you know, of course, now I've got kids that are at dating age and, you know, with my, my youngest daughter, you know, I think uh, any boy that uh, she brings home is going to be a little intimidated oh, and yeah. I will let them be intimidated. <laughs> I think that's excellent. Not so much for your daughter, but for you, certainly, to be able to intimidate the boys. I think my parenting style is, because I'm a journalist, it drives my girls crazy because they're not dating. They're 13, but they are posting on social media a lot. And, you know, I'm scared to death that they're going to post something that is going to come back to haunt them in even just a few years from now. Yep. It's going to, it's going to stay out there forever if it, if it goes out into the, you know, the, the online space. It is. So let's talk about this story coming up. It sort of ties into what we're talking about, which is that fear that comes through when you have the jobs that you and I have. So let's set the scene. So let's start with where we are. This is 1920 England, and it's a couple of years after World War One. There are a lot of women who are entering the workplace, including a woman named Irene Monroe. She is 17 at the time, and she is a typist. She's described as a good worker, but she's been having some troubles lately. People are saying she's becoming more and more aloof and a little jaded about all of the repetitive work that she has to do as a typist. And she decides that she needs a vacation. And this aloofness and this feeling of maybe putting some distance between her and her friends and family, I think, plays into this because she's really looking to connect to people. It seems clear to me. And so she ends up going to Eastbourne, which is the largest city in Sussex. And it's got a a large population, about 62,000 in the 1920s. And she just says, I want to go on the beach, I want to read a book, and just have some time to myself. This is August 16th. It's the peak, as you can imagine, of summer holiday season. And she just sounds like a very whimsical traveler. She shows up to Eastbourne with no room reservations, even though we're in the height of summer. And she just says, I'm just going to kind of let fate take me where I go. She arrives to the seaside town and Now she's struggling to find a reasonably priced accommodation. She's walking around and she's checking in with boarding houses, and she finally sees a shorefront house who's run by a woman named Ada Winniat. Ada says, I have rooms available, but just not tonight. So she actually puts down a deposit. Irene puts down a little bit of a deposit and says, okay, well, I will come for the next two nights but I'll find somewhere else to stay. And Ada says, well, I have a recommendation. There's a a friend of mine owns a cottage. You can stay there for the night and then come back over here tomorrow. This sounds great to Irene. So Irene is wonderfully sending her friends postcards so we can keep up with her. And she sends a postcard to her best friend just after she arrived in Eastbourne. And she says, 
I'm lonely. I really wish I could make some friends here. I thought it was a great idea for me to go to the beach by myself, but maybe not so much. I'm going to do the best I can, and maybe I'll be able to make some new friends, you know, for the few days that I'm going to be here. She said, I'm not in love with Eastbourne yet, but of course I haven't been here a day yet, and I really can't think about it. I just wish you were here. She had asked her friends to come with her on the seaside trip, and nobody could come. So she, you know, is there by herself. So the next day, she's at this cottage. The next day, she goes to the beach and she reads. In the 1920s, it was very customary for women to wear modest clothing. She didn't even wear a swimsuit. She was wearing this bright green coat, which would become important later on. It's so bright and so green on the beach that it's very distinctive. So we are able to have a lot of people who have spotted her through various times when all this is happening. That afternoon, she leaves the beach. She goes to have lunch by herself. She goes shopping. There's a shop employee who says, can I help you? And she says, oh, I'm looking for a gift for an uncle I have back home. And he points her to a gold pencil case And she says, okay, well, this sounds great. Later on, we're going to find out that this is actually meant for her married boss, Mr. Maxwell. It is not meant for any kind of uncle. We don't know a lot of information yet about whether or not this is a platonic relationship or a romantic relationship, but she has decided, you know, she wants to get this pencil case, which is also important. Here's where things get a little dicey for Irene. She leaves the shop And it looks like she has bumped into two local men outside of a nearby pub. And by some accounts, the younger of the two men is seen at some point with his arm wrapped around Irene's waist. And people spot them all over town over the next day. They're visiting tourist sites. They're at scenic lookouts. And, of course, it's because she's attractive and she's wearing this bright green jacket that people put all of this together later on. What's interesting is that she is writing her friends, you know, over the next couple of days, and she never mentions any of these men. So as you know, Irene is going to end up dead. And these two men, it seems clear that they're going to be involved somehow. So if I'm going to now ask you, this seems like a really bad setup. You've got a young woman who's 17, who is, you know, on her own. And she's in a town and seems to be sort of just wandering around. And then she encounters these two men and one is seen with his arm around her waist. Part of this story really is how we put two and two together and who these people are and whether or not they're really guilty. But we do have these two strangers who she makes fast friends with. And I think that it is tempting to say, why would she do any of this? But we never blame the victim. And and this is what is, you know, so frustrating is everybody should have the right to go and enjoy their lives. And this is where you have these offenders that take advantage of those situations. Irene has isolated herself. You know, she's communicating via postcards. But Mm -hmm. as these men are getting to know her, they're probably recognizing, you know, nobody's really keeping tabs on her. I'm assuming at some point, one or both of them end up taking advantage of her isolation. But it just shows that this type of behavior by these offenders was occurring in the 1920s, just as it is today. But I bet people weren't as aware of this occurring back then. I agree with you. And I and it would not have been particularly unusual for a woman of her age 
to go off on her own. I mean, a 17-year-old, though, just seems so incredibly young for me to be, you know, going and, and essentially staying at hostels, it sounds like. But this was something that was not uncommon, and her parents were not alarmed, nor does it seem like they warned her to not do this. She is gaining independence. You know, she has a job. She's not in school. She's a typist. And so she feels like she has every right to go and enjoy a holiday on her own. So after she spends the night at that cottage, she does check into the boarding house with Mrs. Winniet. And Mrs. Winniet sees her. And it had been a few days since she had been staying with her. And she is comfortable enough with Ada to say, this is what my plans are. This is where I'm going, just to let you know. So a few days after she arrives, this is August 19th of 1920, Irene tells Ada that she's going to go visit a suburb of Eastbourne called Hamden Park. And it's mid-afternoon, 2.45. So now we're going to start tracking her movements, which is why I'm going to start bringing up times. There are two men doing maintenance work on the house, on Ada's house, and they watch Irene in her customary very bright green coat leave around 3 o'clock. So 2.45, she tells Ada, I'm leaving. She heads out the door with her jacket at 3 o'clock. Sometime between three and four, another person spots this attractive woman in a green jacket, and she's waiting at a bus stop. And around four o'clock, two men hop off of the bus, and they greet her there. So we're presuming that these are the two men that she believes have become her friends over the last couple of days. The two men and Irene walk off towards the shorefront, and that's the last time anyone saw Irene Monroe alive. This seems obvious, right? We're trying to figure out who these two men are and what they want with Irene. Yeah, so this the shoreline that they're going to, is this a, a very populated area? Well, where she is eventually located is not. And I'll tell you about that in a minute because I have photos for you. Again, the benefit of doing something in the 1920s and even more contemporary is we, we do have photos. So I'll show you what ends up happening after that. But let's just say right now it is fairly remote, not completely remote, but a remote enough where there would be some sort of privacy expected there. Okay. And obviously these witnesses are, are being found because Irene stands out, you know, with she the does. jacket, her, her looks. Do these witnesses say anything uh, about the men or, you know, any distinctive characteristics, any type of descriptions? Do we have that information at this point in time? Not right now, but we will once they discover where Irene is. Okay. So Ada is concerned because her tenant, her short-term tenant, has not returned home. Not enough concern to alert the police. This isn't her daughter, but she is keeping an eye out on her because she's a young woman and she's on her own. So the next day, this is Friday, about 3.30. So this is 24 hours after Ada has seen her and the witness had seen her, you know, walk with two men who got off a bus. There's a family that's vacationing in the area and they make this terrible discovery when they're setting up a picnic. It's a woman's body and we're presuming it's Irene. She's been partially buried in an area known the Crumbles, which is about two miles long and one mile wide. It's a man-made stretch of pebbles that are set in mud that connects Eastbourne with the town of Walsand. And so there are a few buildings. We were talking about if this is remote, there are a few buildings and there's some railroad tracks. 
and there's a place for seaplanes to take off from the water, but this is not some place where you're going to go necessarily vacation, even though we have a family who is there setting up a picnic. It's just not a huge vacation front. So let me show you what this area looks like where the body is found. And I will say that she goes unidentified for quite a long time. So this is the Crumbles Railway after they discover this body. Oh, wow. Why don't you tell listeners what you're looking at here? Besides, I mean, a lot of men in hats and jackets and suits. Yeah, so this area crumbles. What I, you know, the, the prominent feature, of course, is this uh, railroad track mm-hmm. that is right in the middle of this sea of pebbles. There's absolutely really no brush, no trees. Uh, I can see to the horizon buildings in the background, possibly. They almost look like those types of big, you know, cranes that are at ports for for shipping containers, even though in the 1920s, I'm not sure those existed, but that's what those structures look like. And then it appears that we have on the order of about 20 men dressed in dark suits, all wearing hats all walking along the railroad track together as a group, walking away from the vantage point of the camera. Let me show you a different angle, Paul. So we've got this sort of on-the-ground level angle of the area. This is a wider shot, and I'll zoom in from a different angle, from a lower angle of this space. And then I have a very close-up shot of where her body was found. Right. So now, you know, with this image, the railroad track, again, is the prominent feature. But now the photographer is, I I believe, standing on the other side of the railroad track Mm -hmm. facing a direction. I can't, without seeing where the sun's coming from or any real shadows, I can't tell, you know, the direction. But what's interesting is now there's a berm of these pebbles on the other side of the railroad track. Mm -hmm. And so from that direction, somebody on the other side of the berm possibly would not be able to see because in the previous photo, it just looked, everything's wide open as far as you can see. But now there is a change in height of this pebbles. I don't know if that's a hill or if it's just, if it goes up to a different elevation and is flat where these men are standing on top of the berm. But it does appear to provide, because you know, I'm looking, I'm evaluating this as could there have been some witnesses right. to have seen anything that happened to Irene? And initially it was like, well, it's wide open. If anybody's out there, they would have seen something happening unless it was in the middle, middle of the night. But now I can see where there could be some obstruction of vision as a result of this change in elevation. Yeah. And we don't know when this happened. Again, there's a 24-hour gap as of right now until the police start talking to witnesses. There is an overnight section. There's an early morning section. So we don't know when this happened. But let me scroll down and you can see the close-up. So we're going to hear later on that this was a four-foot deep grave. I don't even know if you could call it a grave, a hole. And, you know, they could see part of her body sticking out from it. And this is a <laughs> intrepid cop, I'm assuming, down there trying to demonstrate where and what position her body was found. And I can tell you a little bit more about the position of her body. I just wanted you to see, you know, the remoteness. I mean, this is incredible. You're right. It looks like it's the railroad track, and that's pretty much it, with the exception of whatever we see in the distance. You said something that really surprises me. You you said that this, this grave that she was buried in was four feet deep. Yeah. Does it look like that? I wonder if they're counting the, what did you call it, a berm? I wonder if they're counting the berm as part of the grave, maybe. 
because at least where the the man who I'm assuming he's laying down on top of the pebbles to replicate, you know, where Irene's body is found, it must be because graves typically, unless somebody is very well equipped with equipment to dig deep graves in soil, to dig a grave in these pebbles that are four feet deep, and you imagine these pebbles, you know, you pull them out of a hole, they're going to want to slide back down into the hole. This yeah. is not an, a quick and easy process. So my sense is, is that she probably was more covered with the pebbles to possibly obscure her, but that's why she was close enough to the surface where parts of her body were able to be observed. Right. And this is man-made. So there's a layer of mud underneath these pebbles. When the pebbles stop, there's mud. So, right, it seems like two really impossible things to be able to dig through to really cover up somebody's body well. So let me tell you about what the position her body was in and all of that. So the family who was picnicking, for God knows what reason, I have no idea why they would picnic here. It doesn't seem like a great place to picnic, but thank goodness they did because they were the ones who discovered her body. They discover her after seeing one foot exposed sticking out from underneath the pebbles from the ground, and they called the police who, as we have just discussed, arrive in droves to the scene and they find a woman lying on her left side wearing a bright green coat and covered with the gravel. To them, this seems like a hasty burial. And we've already talked about maybe they didn't intend for it to be hasty, but you have no choice with all of this, you know, pebbles and gravel and mud underneath and, and all of that. So she's lying on her side and it just sounds like at some point it was just a dump and cover as best we can sort of situation. There's a large amount of blood that's lost and then is soaked deep into the rocks and underneath the pebbles that are under her body. There are loose teeth found nearby. Aside from missing a shoe on her right leg, her dress is pushed upwards, but she's fully dressed, so she's not missing panties. I know we know that doesn't mean anything, but they seem to think that this was not a sexual assault. The woman's face is severely battered and bruised. And a couple of feet from the body, there's a large stone that's stained with blood. And the police think that this was what the murder weapon was. She had some extensive brain injuries, which they believe led to her death, a broken jaw, and then, of course, missing teeth. She is unrecognizable. But honestly, even if she were, nobody in this town, with the exception of Ada, would be able to identify what her real name is at all. Sure. You know, and they were at such a disadvantage in terms of databases to uh, be able to identify Irene, you know, either through fingerprints or, you know, even if there had been teletype service where, you know, now somebody reports her missing several days later. I imagine you're not getting a lot of information over to this jurisdiction out there where her body was found. Right. And so the police are stymied and they start with her body and trying to figure out when this even happened. So they transport her body from the scene to a mortuary where a physician examines her. He says, based on the rigor, that she died between 12 and 24 hours earlier, which would tally with what we know, which is the last time anybody that we know as of right now saw her was 24 hours before. He said, based on the temperature of her body, it was cold to the touch, but we also know 
that liver temperature tests were, I don't believe, developed until a little bit later. I know during Heinrich's time in the 30s and 40s, they were using liver temperature. But right now, I think it was just, let's touch her and see how cold she was. But does that sound right to you? Well, it's it's an important feature that pathologists will pay attention to. Now, now rigor you know, this is where at death, the muscles tighten up, mm-hmm. you know, and it initially starts in the, the peripheral, the smaller muscles, like in the hands, and then ultimately takes the larger muscles in the whole body. And then it reverses itself over time as the muscle tissues start to break down. The presence of rigor generally does indicate that the person has died within a relatively short period of time of the body being observed, right? Whoever's making the the observation of the rigor, whether it be out at the crime scene or in the morgue, you have to factor in that time difference. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, that's where it's important that at least he is observing rigor. That tells me, yes, that is consistent with the witness statements saying that she was seen with two men the day before, the afternoon before. Mm-hmm. Now, rigor is just like anything with the death process. It's going to be how long it lasts, how fast it develops, how fast it goes away. Is all going to be dependent upon the environmental conditions. So, you know, this is summertime in August, you know, so I'm imagining at least it's warmer in the afternoon, but then overnight, I imagine this this location probably gets fairly cool. You know, her body in essence is refrigerated and that's where now her body temperature is also a variable that's impacted by environmental conditions. Mm-hmm. So all of these observations are important, but the best that you can do is give a very broad window like this pathologist or this uh, mortician did, 12 to 24 hours. That's probably as narrow of a window that this individual could provide as an opinion. Well, once they establish when they think she died, and remember, we don't have an ID, so this seems pretty accurate for us. They don't know who this woman is, and they don't know that the last time her landlady saw her was 24 hours ago. They start examining the body much more closely, and they discover that she has some small wounds, which the media sometimes describes as puncture wounds, near her temple and near her lip. So at first they think it's a knife, but now they think it is a stick-like object. And this comes into play later on. So we can either think of this as some sort of torture or she is being hit by something pointy, at least at some point. And I know that both of these pieces of evidence, if either of these things happened, it would be important when we're profiling the person who might have done this. So, yeah, I mean, there's several things. Of course, there could have been another weapon used that is in a shape that could produce these wounds. Now, when they're saying it looks like the pointed end of a stick, that would kind of tell me, okay, these wounds must have an irregular type shape Mm -hmm. to them versus, you know, let's say she is getting these punctate wounds or stab wounds from an ice pick type weapon. Mm -hmm. Or do we have an offender that is maybe wearing jewelry, has, uh, you know, rings on, and these rings could potentially produce these types of injuries. Right now, it's just, it's important that, okay, we have injuries consistent with this rock that's present at the scene, but then there's something else that is possibly impacting her temple and her lips. Is this an indication of two offenders? 
who are using two different weapons on her or one offender that opts to use two different weapons consecutively or in sequence. And they don't know yet. They're still gathering information on her body. They do notice that there are scratches on one of her thighs, on the inner thigh. Again, this could be a lot of different things when they say scratches. It could have been something that she had gotten previously. It could be during uh, attempted sexual assault. It could have been because she was killed just a few feet away and dragged and deposited, you know, in this grave. And maybe she got scratches that way from a stick on the ground. I don't know if this really tells us anything, but there is damage to her body other than the blunt force trauma that happened to her head. Sure. And even though she is found fully dressed, and I know I've I've addressed that multiple times in the past in terms of do not rely upon that to dismiss the fact that any type of sexual activity occurred. But we also don't know what kind of time window the offenders spent with Irene right. uh, leading up to this. It is possible that there had been a sexual assault prior at a different location or even in this location. And she was allowed to redress and then she's killed. That happens and that happens more frequently than what people realize. Now we're going to start talking about victimology incorrectly, I believe. The doctor who is examining her body notes a couple of things. He says, number one, that this unidentified woman was not a virgin. I'm assuming he's looking at the hymen, right, and saying it's broken. We also know that's bullshit, right? Can we talk a little bit about that? Well, to a point, obviously, the hymen is is something that is a like a membrane that in younger girls is present and was often used incorrectly to determine whether or not uh, there had been sexual activity by that woman if it had been torn or, or broken. The best I think that the, the hymen provides is that if it's recently damaged and actively bleeding, then that demonstrates penetration had occurred recently. Mm-hmm. However, the absence of the hymen or a hymen that has been opened at some prior point has been disproven to determine whether or not there had been any type of uh, sexual activity or or penetration. We know that that structure can change as a girl and woman matures. And I still hear that myth. And so I think it's important, much like the, well, there's no way sexual assault happened in this case because of X, Y, and Z, that it's important for us to talk about that. And I know that I I repeat that caveat over and over again. They say it's not a sexual assault, but we know differently. And I'm just going to keep saying it because I think it's important. That's good. You know, and I'm sure there's some medical professionals that can go into much greater detail than I can. I'm, I know what I know just enough to be able to understand how I can utilize that medical aspect to assess what is going on in case. But there are people out there that have high levels of expertise in in assessing women's uh, anatomy related to sexual assault. So we are moving from inaccurate victimology to just plain stupid, as far as I'm concerned, and sexist. So Irene had apparently had her pubic hair shaved off. And we can talk about how maybe she wasn't the one who did that. We don't know what happened during this assault. But let's assume that Irene was the one who made this decision. This would have been unusual in the 1920s. 
this leads this jerk of a physician to believe that she was bisexual. There is nothing wrong with being bisexual. There was in the 1920s, and this was considered disparaging to her character, and it framed her in a way that made her an unsympathetic victim in the media. It was pretty disgusting. This is framing, at the time, Jane Doe as someone who was promiscuous. Why that matters, I don't know, but it did matter to the media. Obviously, from a social standpoint, it's very disturbing that they would have painted her in a negative light because of this. Now, from my perspective, in assessing the case, I want to know, was there evidence that her pubic hair had been shaved recently, like within the last 12 hours, as if the offenders did that? That's very significant. And if they had done that, then I would expect some evidence of shaved pubic hairs to be present on her clothing, uh, et cetera. Because so, that's, that's showing a level of intent, motivation, et cetera, uh, by the offenders. Well, I would say this. I'm going to introduce someone who I have a lot of respect for, who I think would have picked up on all of that. Do you know who Bernard Spilsbury is? I'm assuming you might have heard of him. Have you ever heard of him? I have heard of him. I'm drawing a blank in terms of where he was from and what his role was, but I most certainly know that name. So he was a forensic pathologist in England, and I have his biography. It's wonderful. A buddy of mine gave it to me, and he solved so many cases. He was this legendary forensic pathologist, and they bring him in because I'm assuming a young white woman found in a remote area in the middle of tourist season on a very popular kind of well-to-do area of England was alarming to the local community. And so they bring in Bernard Spilsbury, which was a really big deal. And thank goodness he's here because he does a thorough job. It might not be a Paul Holes 2023 job, but as capable as you could be in 1920. So this is what, at the very beginning of this, Spilsbury says, this is what I think. I think she was alive, and this is terrifying to me, she was alive for up to half an hour after this beating. Let me ask you this. How would he know that? How would you know that? that this is someone who had a severe beating and then, I guess, bled out. Is it the amount of blood or where it's located? Well, there's there's several factors. When you have, let's say you are beaten like Irene was beaten, and you have, it sounds like, depressed skull fractures, you have hemorrhaging in the brain, she's also got a broken jaw, she's got a lot of blood in her oral cavity. One of the, the first things that I note when I'm assessing blood patterns around a victim is looking for expiratory patterns. Mm -hmm. As the victim is continuing to breathe, even though they may be unconscious, but they still, they have respiration and they will start having this natural reflex to cough as the blood is filling up inside their throat or they're breathing in and out and spraying blood. And the more that that is present, the more breathing that they've done over time. So that can give you some temporal indications on how long the person was still breathing. But also, you know, the pathologist is going to be noting, okay, what brain structures were affected as we've talked about before. It's, it, it really is what is damaged that dictates, are these injuries fatal? Are they, are they survivable? Or are, are they immediately fatal, etc.? And so he's probably assessing her injuries are not immediately fatal. He's noting the amount of blood that probably pooled underneath her. And that takes time as the heart continues to beat and you have these open wounds. If the heart stops beating and you don't have gravity causing blood to flow out of the body, 
Now, you know, there's not going to be as much blood at the scene. It's still going to pool to a point, but Mm -hmm. the longer the person's heart is beating with open wounds, the more blood that comes out. In addition to what I've talked about with any type of respiratory indicators coming out of this oral cavity of hers or mouth that has been filled up with blood due to the direct injuries and possibly hemorrhaging within the skull itself. So let me tell you what Spilsbury said. He said this in his findings. He's referring to a shingle, which I think is some type of a piece of equipment or something to do with the railroad tracks that is found on her body. And it could have been something that was weighing her down or something that they intended to cover her body with even more. But when I say shingle, that's what we're referring to. So he says, injuries to the left face consistent with a single blow by the blood-stained stone if the head was resting on the shingle on the right side, accounting for right injuries. So tell me about that because there's more, but tell me about that bit. Yeah, so what he is seeing is that whatever damage to the left side of her face is consistent with the stone impacting her face. Now, he's indicating that if she's laying on her, let's say her head is laying on its right side, pressed up against the shingle, which almost sounds like it could be like a railroad tie, something that is a solid object. When the force of the blow by the stone impacts her on the left side, her right head is also against this hard object. And that force ends up basically causing injuries to her right side. This is contra coup type of injuries. It's like when you, when you get a blow in a concussion type mm-hmm. of situation where you might be hit on one side of your head, but the other side of the brain ends up getting hit because that force transfers. That's what it sounds like he's describing as she gets hit with the, the stone on the left side. And as a result of her right side at, at that moment, also being against this hard shingle object, mm-hmm. it's getting some injuries like lacerations or bruisings or other types of uh, abrasions going on. So this is not necessarily she's being hit on both sides of her head. There's another impact happening that is not caused by the killer, but something on the ground or something in the grave. Is that right? That's what I'm taking away from that. And it dawns on me because earlier described that on her right temple and right lip that she had these punctate type of injuries. Mm-hmm. I mean, if this shingle thing is like a railroad tie, which, you know, you've got wood that's irregular, it's possible. I wonder if these punctate type injuries was a feature that's on the shingle. It could be. And now he wants to talk about the amount of blood loss, because that's where, as you said, that's where we come across how slowly she died. And I'm going to say this word totally wrong, and you can correct me. From the amount of blood extravasated, extravasated, does that sound right? Oh, exvasculated. That's it. Okay. (laughs) From the amount, then we're going to do it. Now audience can forget about that. It's basically, yeah, the amount of blood that has flowed out of the body. That was a very long explanation that I gave for something short. (laughs) So he says it's a slow rate of bleeding and shock based on the amount of blood. He thinks she survived for a short time after, might have been a half an hour, but she would be deeply unconscious of this the whole time, right, once she was hit. He thinks the death might have been accelerated by the weight of this railroad tie type thing, this shingle on her body, compressing her chest. So something on her body. And then the death may have been due to combined effects of shock and the loss of blood and asphyxia. Does that all sound right to you? 
Yeah, it, it sounds perfectly in line with how he's describing what's on her body. Here she's got these blows with the stone. It doesn't sound like, you know, sometimes bludgeonings and not to be too gruesome, but you really see with large, massive objects as the weapon, you, you see heads being crushed doesn't sound like that's what's happening here. She's probably got some depressed fractures to her facial bones, possibly to her skull. We know she's got the broken jaw, but it's not something that it causes immediate death. But this shingle, it's got to be a railroad tie, must have heft to it, you know, and the offenders, after she's laying there and has been beaten, they've placed this heavier object on top of her. It sounds like on top of her torso, her upper body, and it must have enough weight where the pathologist Bernard Spilsbury is saying, yeah, this would probably restrict her breathing, you know, and that's where the asphyxia comes in. So as she's laying there unconscious with obvious brain damage and is bleeding out, her body is also being prevented from breathing normally due to the weight on her chest. Well, now we're going to get back to, are we going to be able to identify the body? And Irene Monroe's temporary boarding house landlord, who is Ada Winniet, is reading the newspaper and sees there's a Jane Doe. And because she's been concerned about Irene, she's expecting there to be a big problem here because she hasn't seen Irene for a few days. She alerts the police. The police come down and say, can you identify the body? And one of the saddest things is she couldn't because her face was so badly beaten, she couldn't positively identify her except for that green jacket. Yeah. So the police make the confirmation. She meets all the other criteria, the age and the other descriptions, and they reach out to Irene's mother, and then they start asking for tips. Now we know who this woman was. She was in for just a few days, and she met a couple of men is what they are now starting to hear from witnesses in this area. There's a man named Frederick Wells who says that that night that we think she was murdered, Frederick says that he saw three people, two men and one woman, walking in the area that night. And there were a lot of other people who said they saw a woman who was described as someone who looked a lot like Irene walking with two men, but she seemed very happy. She was not in distress. They were not dragging her around. She wasn't drunk that we know of. She just seemed to have made two new friends. And this was a commitment. I mean, they had been hanging out for several days together. So then I try to think, okay, let's, Paul, remove the sexual assault aspect. I know that statistically that's what would have happened. But let's just assume that there is no sexual assault. What are the other scenarios that could happen? Could it be robbery or just an argument? This seems like one big blow with a rock and not maybe premeditated. Well, you know, I think all motives are on the table. It strikes me that she had purchased that, um, what was it, a pencil container? Yeah. I don't know if, if that was a very expensive item or if it looked like a very expensive item. There's nothing that you've told me about her personal possessions. Did she have a purse? Would she have had cash inside that purse? 
Of course, if any of that is missing, then you see that there is a financial motive that's going on. Uh, most certainly, there could have been just uh, some sort of interpersonal argument mm -hmm. that could have resulted in violence. You know, part of where we are at right now is there's an assumption that the two men that she was with are her killers, mm -hmm. you know, and of course, they would be suspects. But if they're interviewed and they say, well, we left her, you know, she was alive when we left, you yep. know, and, and now you have the possibility that she ran into another bad guy yep. and it. It, it strikes me she's, you know, her body is right next to railroad tracks. You know, is there a possibility a train came through, stopped, so, you know, somebody got off, saw her, maybe was an attempted sexual assault and then yeah. hopped back on the train and took off. You know, there's so many options at this point in terms of what's going on, both from motive as well as suspects. But of course, number one priority for investigation at this point in time is identifying those two men because they were the last ones with her. So that puts information they possess closer in time to her death. Well, as you saw by the number of men in dark suits and hats from that photo, they put every person possible on the case. This was very alarming to a tourist town. They talked to her family in Brighton. They talked to the boss, who she supposedly bought this gold pencil case for. Everybody's accounted for. You know, they weren't sure if he traveled down here and it was a crime of passion. He has an alibi. All of the people in her life back in Brighton and London have been crossed off the list. So now we are focusing in on these two strange men. So there are more witnesses coming forward. Again, this green jacket is a huge clue because it makes her stand out. Now they're trying to create kind of a composite of these two men. And the consensus is that one's older than the other. One who's younger is closer to age to Irene. And remember, she's 17. So this is a very young man and then an older man. They're both wearing gray suits, and one of them had a yellow walking stick that was very distinct. So a couple of pieces of evidence in this case that are helpful because they're distinct. This is a stick that's so distinct, it has a dog's face on, I'm assuming, on the, the handle, you know, at one end. And people remember that this was unusual. And the police remember that there were poke marks on her. Mm -hmm. So they're thinking when they find the man with the walking stick, we may be looking at one of two weapons. Maybe one hit her with a rock and the other one was hitting her with this walking stick. Does that make sense based on, I know I gave you a vague description of what these marks look like, but does that make sense? There's a distinct possibility this walking stick is a bludgeoning weapon, and it has this decorative end that probably has irregular protrusions on it, mm -hmm. you know, so possibly those could have contributed to these unusual punctate marks on the right side of her temple and, and her lip. But then you also have to consider that the shaft of this weapon, the walking end, the bottom of this thing as also possibly being used. And so it's critical to get this walking stick and evaluate it. You know, first, it's going to be the obvious. Is there blood? Is there hair to indicate that it had been used? And if not, is there any aspect about it that is consistent and unique to be able to match up with these what sound like unusually shaped injuries on her temple? Well, once the police hear about this walking stick, they become immediately even more alarmed and want to find out who these 
these two men are. So Frederick Wells, who is the man who had initially said, listen, I've seen these two guys with this woman in the green jacket, he reaches out to the police and says, can I meet again with a detective just to sort of go over things? I'm really concerned about finding the killer of this woman. So a detective meets Frederick Wells in the town, and they're standing there talking. And as they're talking, Frederick Wells kind of swings around, and he sees a man walking with numerous women, several women, and he says, that's the guy. That's one of them that I saw. And we now have to identify one of the men who was Jack Field. And then we find out quickly that there's another man named William Gray. And they fit the description. So this is dumb luck. I know that this is part of police work, (laughs) but sometimes you just get lucky. And this was 62,000 people in this area at the time. So this is not a tiny little town where you're just going to run across someone. This was luck that Frederick Wells said, oh, boy, that's one of the guys that I saw. Yeah, and I kind of wonder, even though it's a town of 62,000, you know, is this witness and are these two men, you know, everybody has anchor points where they spend, you know, blocks of their time during the day. And maybe their anchor points every day are in the same spot. What's interesting is their background. So these two men tally with the descriptions of what we've heard. Jack Field is 19 years old, and he had served in the Royal Navy during World War One. He had tried to desert multiple times. He was currently unemployed, and he lived with the other man, William Gray, who was the older man, 28 years old. He was born in South Africa. He also served in the war. He was also unemployed. William Gray, the older man, was married, but both men loved picking up vacationing women, and sometimes they both robbed tourists. So now I'm wondering if the motive is coming a little bit more into play here. These are two guys who we've talked about this quite a lot. Just because these are all things that are checked off does not mean definitively that these are our people. We're just gathering more kind of circumstantial evidence and a little bit of profiling to figure out, do they meet the criteria? Absolutely. You know, as soon as you were describing their MO of, uh, you know, picking up, you know, women that are on vacation and then ultimately robbing them, the movie Taken came, you know, into my Ooh. head, right? I never saw that. Oh, no. It's, yeah, that's a, that's a great movie. You know, it's, it's, I have a particular set of skills. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, here you have, in essence, con men mm-hmm. and they're probably decent looking. So these women, you know, are attracted to them. They're charming enough to where their guards are let down. And then in order to rob them, they're not robbing them in the middle of the street with all these people around. They come up with some sort of ruse that the woman is comfortable enough with in order to isolate them, in order to physically take whatever these women have that they want. I don't normally show you photos of the people. I mean, every once in a while I will. I just don't think it's applicable how beautiful she is or how handsome. I am going to show you, though, a photo of the two men because they are handsome. And I could see if you are a young woman who's a tourist and you're kind of hanging out in a small town, how you could just say, oh, William and Jack are pretty good looking and, and they look smart in their suits and handsome. And I could see how they could be grifters. Of course, this photo, I'm imagining this photo is taken after arrest, during court. So they're probably, you know, 
putting on their best presentation, mm -hmm. but they, they look like they take care of themselves. You know, their hair is groomed. They've got nice clothes on. Mm -hmm. I could see where somebody like Irene would probably feel fairly comfortable with these two men. Okay. So when the police interview William and Jack, they have conflicting stories. It seems like they're trying to line up an alibi with each other, but they're both forgetting things. One says, oh, I don't know anything about a pub. And the other one says, I don't remember anything about a bus. So it's conflicting. The police are suspicious. They call in witnesses. No one can pick these guys out of a lineup. No. We know now that witness identification can be inherently unreliable, but I don't mm -hmm. think they believed that in the 1920s when a man's handshake was good enough. I think they believed what people said. Yeah, it, and back then, most certainly, these eyewitnesses, if they positively identified somebody, and it, was, and it would be done in a way that would be very biased and prejudicial against the person who is, is being selected, you know, law enforcement would put a lot of weight as well as prosecution would put a lot of weight on that eyewitness identification. And, and, and as you mentioned, we know that that is not as reliable as what it used to be thought. This is where, you know, now it's, okay, so you don't have witnesses being able to pick them up. However, their interviews are going to be so critical. You know, did they interview these two men separately or were they interviewing them on the street and these guys are just kind of playing off each other and trying yeah. to align their statements to make sure the, you know, it minimizes their apparent culpability in the crime. Yeah. And then physical evidence. Do investigators start taking a look at their clothing, do search warrants on their house to look to see is there, is there any bloody clothing inside their house that could be matched back to Irene, which of course, back in 1920s, you're really not doing any type of biological testing. But if you find, let's say, some pants that have some blood spatter on the, on the uh, lower parts, that would be consistent with somebody who's receiving multiple blows from a stone to Irene's head. They have none of that. What they have is this. They go to the house where these two guys live. They find gray suits. They find a yellow walking stick with a decorative dog's head on one end, which witnesses say they saw these two men with her. That's quite good. You know, even though they, you don't have anybody picking these men out, the fact that you have such a unique and distinctive item that had previously been described separate from these men, and then you find that item. Yep. There's a lot of weight that I put on that. Well, and if they were smart, they would have said, oh, yeah, that was us. We saw her. Mm -hmm. But then we left her and that's it. And then that explains why, because there's no blood. There's no blood and no hair on the suits and the walking stick. But the fact that they say they don't even know her, I think, is what's alarming to police. They tried to get an alibi with a female friend who flatly denied that she had seen them that Thursday night. But there were two barmaids at a pub who say that it looks like in the middle of the night after Irene was murdered, we think they were spending lots of money on alcohol and on alcohol for women that they had never had before because, remember, they're both out of a job. We don't know how much money Irene had with her when she went on this trip, do we? We don't know. We know she had the gold case. We know she had some money, but more than they would have had. So enough to buy drinks. You know, they're not out there buying designer suits, but they are spending more money on alcohol than they normally would. Okay. And you have to assume she's on vacation. She has to have money on her. Yep. Again, she's seen with them over a few day period. So this is a commitment. If robbery is their only real motive, 
here, they are spending some time with her. It sounds like a significant amount of time with nothing happening that we know of because she looked happy as people saw her with these two men going off toward the crumbles that night. Nobody is alarmed by this woman with these two men. And that's part of their assessment, you know, in terms of what they feel they need to do in order to make her feel comfortable enough to where they can get her at a location where it minimizes their risk of being seen and to be able to, you know, steal what they want to steal from her. You know, the question, of course, is, is if this is something that they're routinely doing and they're letting their women victims, you know, live afterwards, why did they kill Irene? We'll see what happens. Let me tell you what happens because they both are arrested. They go on trial and they both seem to have a defense attorney who is trying to sully Irene's reputation. Remember the whole bisexual promiscuous thing? That's the only thing that they can really hang their hats on here. The trial began in December of 1920. And prosecutors painted Irene as just an innocent victim, 17 years old, and she was naive and became friends with these two lowlifes who had been robbing tourists and womanizing and all of this stuff. The defense says, you know, listen, she was of questionable character. My guys have problems, but this is really not a woman they would have associated with, which is ridiculous. Eventually... Under the pressure of the trial, it seems like because the men had such bad reputations, it was very clear to Field and Gray that they were likely to get convicted. So I think the police come to them and as the trial goes on, they're feeling the pressure and and they go to both of them and say, listen, you know, why don't you tell us information? And they end up turning on each other. The story is that on the evening of her murder, the men had escorted her out to the crumbles with the intention of robbing her. Okay. Once they were isolated and no one was around, they try to rob her, and it sounds like she fought back. And the younger man, Jack Field, bashed her in the face with his walking stick, and she fell backwards and was screaming. In a panic, the other man, William Gray, took a rock and beat her to death with it. They say that this was just sort of a, a spur of the moment. If she had just given us the pencil box and any money that she had— this would have been over and we would have just left her out there. But they end up killing her. And in a panic, they dig this grave, they drop her inside, and they cover up with gravel. They did not know, they say, that one of her feet was exposed. They took her wallet, they took one of her rings, and they never found it. And then they went to the pub. Wow. So what happens, though, is neither one will take responsibility. They'll both say, I helped cover it up, but they blame the other one for the actual murder. He's the one that used the rock to kill her, basically. They're trying to pin that, but they're both, are both their statements in the same line where they're saying we took her out there to rob her, and then it was the other one that actually, you know, bludgeoned her with the the rock. You got it. Consistent. Yes, their statements are consistent, except who held the rock. And it doesn't matter because they both got a guilty verdict and eventually their appeals were denied. And the next year they were both hanged. So all of that for some rings and some money and a night out of drinking. Did they ever find the pencil case by chance? 
it looks like they sold it, is what uh, my understanding is, that they eventually sold it, but that she had enough money for them to, to hit the pub after that. And not the ring, though. They never found one of her rings that they stole. Yeah, because that's, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this case during this era, and in terms of physical evidence, if, if law enforcement was able to recover any of the stolen property, that, of course, is hugely significant. Even if you don't have the confession, you've got, well, they possess items that they could place back on Irene prior to her homicide. Mm -hmm. Their confession sounds like it is uh, spot on in terms of what happened to Irene out there by the railroad tracks. You know, this is where evaluating the details of a confession, you want to assess it relative to what the evidence, uh, you know, what the pathologist is saying, what the crime scene investigation is showing. Does that add up to show that, yes, they have knowledge that the killer would possess about what happened to her in that location? And everything... You know, even though it's very superficial during how you're recounting it from their confession standpoint, but everything is lining up to where it gives me great confidence. They got the right guys. Yeah. And this is where a confession makes sense. And sometimes it doesn't. We talk about that false confessions are well-known. People are in prison when they shouldn't be from false confessions. But mm -hmm. right, when you line it up with the physical evidence, then it all makes sense. And it goes from a circumstantial case to something that's more rock solid. And it sounds like that's what happened in this case, so to me, this was a prime example of all of the things lining up the way that that we're supposed to. People with a prior history, you know, lots of witnesses who were reliable, distinct evidence that they could locate and not only identify the victim, but identify one of the killers. This confession and then the circumstantial evidence or the physical evidence that backs it all up. So it's sort of the perfect case to me. And we don't get very many of those. And I think it's important to point out is that, in essence, you have these two predators. Now, usually when I use the term predator, I'm, I'm talking about somebody that is fantasy motivated, sexually motivated in terms of the types of crimes. Mm -hmm. But here you have two men who have identified a victim pool that they can benefit from financially, and they developed a scheme to be able to do this over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, you know, because of Irene fighting back, uh, you know, the men reacted uh, violently and, and took her life. But, you know, this is where you see this in the financial aspect. There are financial predators and they develop, whether it's somebody who's going to, you know, hang out as, you know, drunks come out of the bar. And mm -hmm. then if they see, you know, somebody stumbling down and who's isolated themselves trying to find where their car's at, then they go and mug them. And they do that over and over again because it's easy. They have identified a victim pool. They've identified that they can get away with this crime over and over again and benefit from it. I agree. I like this case just because I think it is straightforward and it lays out well. This was not a particularly complicated case. It was just great to be able to look at all of this and go, boy, this actually makes sense. There's no doubt in my mind. So every once in a while, I'm going to give you one just to throw you a bone, Paul, just to throw you a bone. I'm going to I'm going to give you I'm going to give you one of those cases. So next week, I will bring you something that is going to be a lot stickier and more complicated and it's going to confuse you. So you should enjoy this while you can. <laughs> Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sharpen my uh, brain for next week then. <laughs> Good. Thanks. This has been an Exactly Right production. 
For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Liana Squillacci. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now. Follow Barry Bones and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase Buried Bones merch.